Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where in a couple days, curling will be back on the TV. My favorite winter sport, probably maybe my favorite sport overall, I don't know, but certainly a sport that I very much enjoy playing and watching during the winter months has been pretty much gone since the start of the pandemic. The week where things all shut down last March was actually the week of the Women's World Curling Championship, which was canceled, and we haven't had any real elite-level curling on TV since. But that is changing on Friday night as the 2021 Scotties Tournament of Hearts, the National Women's Curling Championship for Canada, is kicking off in Calgary, where they have set up a curling bubble. So from now until the end of April, there's going to be a series of events in that bubble. The Women's National Championship, the Men's National Championship, the Mixed Doubles National Championship, then the Men's World Championship, and then a couple of tour events will all take place out in Calgary. All of this is being done because curling is in the Olympics, and they need to run these events to determine Olympic qualification and who will represent, uh, in the Canadian case, Canada. So all of this is really leading up to the Beijing Olympics next winter. So that's why it's all happening. But since curling is coming back, and if you're like me and you're just stuck inside working all day, little daytime curling can't really hurt, I don't think. So uh, very excited to have it back. thought this was a good opportunity to look back at a conversation I had a couple of years ago with Brian Chick, who is a player. He'll actually be in the bubble at a coaching role with Team Alberta. And he wrote a book a few years ago entitled Written in Stone, A Modern History of Curling. Now, this is an oral history-based book looking at this transition of curling from very much a recreational sport and getting into the years of professionalization that are associated with curling going into the Olympic Games and everything that comes with that. So this is a discussion that I had with him back in 2019. We actually had it on the media bench of the Continental Cup of Curling, which was held in Las Vegas that year, back in the times when we could travel and go to live events. All those, uh, you know, the crazy before times. Uh, so you might hear some background noise because the ice crew was working on the ice. It was in between games at the Continental Cup. But I was very happy to have the opportunity to speak with Brian about the book. Uh, really an influential time in the history of curling. And he does a great job with the book and explaining everything going on at a time that for a lot of casual fans, a lot of behind the scenes, people weren't always aware of what was going on. Didn't quite make the press as much as it would today. So very happy to speak with Brian and share this conversation again. So let's get right to my conversation with Brian Chick. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So you wrote this book. You've self-published this book. Uh, it's sort of all you here. Why did you want to do a, a book about curling? Uh, I, I've been a curler all my life. I grew up around the sport. Um, it, it's uh, been, a, been a huge part of my life, both, both uh, professionally and just as a, as a pastime. And um, in, my, in my other life, I, was, I went to journalism school, and I always liked just being a storyteller. So those, those two things kind of came together. And 
I always knew I was going to write a book. I didn't I didn't know exactly how it was going to come together. And once I finally wrapped my head around it, it was it seemed like this was the story I wanted to tell. There are other books like it from previous eras, and there wasn't anything like it that kind of told the modern story. So that's what I was going for. So why why sort of the historical perspective? I mean, curling has so many stories in it, and a lot of the attention in the sport right now really centers around the Olympics and the players who could make it to the Olympics. That's sort of the popular imagination of it. But why did you want to take that backwards look? I really kind of wanted to paint the picture of why things are the way they are right now. Like, basically, the the book starts as the Olympics start coming into the picture, starting in the late 80s when it was a demonstration sport in Calgary. And then all of the... the developments along the way that kind of pushed it forward into the sport we know now with with the Olympics, with Grand Slams, with international competition the way it is. I wanted to kind of let, now that there's this huge swell of new participation in the sport, I just kind of wanted to paint the picture of like what it was not that long ago and, and why, why it is the way it is now. So one of the things though that I find interesting about that is the sort of the the pro the progression that we've had from sort of '88 and Calgary until now, like it's almost like a different sport in in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. And um, I always say the the funniest thing about curling becoming Olympic is that people started treating it like a sport. <laughs> there, right. all of a sudden, fitness mattered, and nutrition mattered, and coaching mattered, and other things that other sports have been doing for. <laughs> Years and years and years that were always kind of on the wayside in curling until until 98 in Nagano when all of a sudden, okay, maybe we should consider some of these other uh, sports sciences. And so, yeah, if you look at what curling was like in the 70s and 80s compared to what it is now, it's, it's almost night and day different. It's comical to look at, you know, just how how unscientific it was compared to what it is now with the effort and the time that people are putting into it. So what was your approach? I mean, obviously, history podcast, I'm a historian professionally. That's what my job is full time. And, you know, you look at something like, like this book, I, I can't imagine that there's a lot of deep curling archives through which one would, would spend a lot of time, but, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's probably more than you think, but what I really wanted to do in the way I told the story is I talked to the people who were there, and the nice thing about a modern history and only going back 20 or 30 years is that a, most of those people are still around, and so I could talk to you know, uh, Kevin Martin and Glenn Howard or Colleen Jones, all these people who lived through those, those first Olympic trials and right up until most recent Olympics, I talked to 48 different people who have all been a big part of the sport during that time. So as far as uh, telling the story, there was no shortage of resources just because I wasn't going back that far. And the other part is, um, like, I just, you know, used the Google machine, (laughs) found articles from the time, found videos. Like, YouTube has almost, uh, in the book, I I footnote every time, if you want to watch this story here's the YouTube link for it. So you can go back and actually watch the game or watch the shots that we're talking about. And uh, YouTube actually was a huge resource in, in trying to put this all together. It is kind of scary sometimes that you can fall in those rabbit holes <laughs> and all of a sudden it's two in the morning and you're watching 
Kevin Martin throw a rock through in the tenth end of the World Championship? Oh my like, God. How did I get to this point? That like, that shot, I've I've watched that end more than any any human on earth, and I, <laughs> I promise that is a that is a fact because I use it when I coach a lot, and so when I'm teaching strategy, I talk about I get this end. Okay, last end. What do you want to do? Keep it clean to score one. Why are you leaving the guards there? Why are you throwing? And so I've I've probably watched that end a hundred times, and uh, that's that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But it is one of my well, just one of those things that that will always just grind my gears right. a little bit. Right. So, so you, let's talk about that. You mentioned '98 and getting to Nagano. What was the the biggest change? Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about how teams were selected uh, or qualified for the Olympics. But for the athletes themselves, those people you talked about, that mid '90s, knowing that the Olympics is coming, what were teams doing to get set and get geared up for Japan? Well, a couple of things. A couple of things were different at that time. One, the the trials process was different, and that you just had to win a particular bond spiel to get your spot. So teams that weren't necessarily in the top ten or the top fifteen or the top twenty, if they happen to win the right bond spiel, got a spot at the Olympic trials. So that was a big difference at the time, and and also just from the organizational perspective. Uh, what was at the time the Canadian Curling Association they hadn't been through it before they didn't really know what to expect from an Olympics they didn't know how to properly prepare their athletes um, you know talking about bringing trainers and doctors and whether it's sports psychologists or whatever else part of the, the entourage that travels with them now is probably as big as the team uh, or bigger than the team but uh, at the time that was all still it took them a few Olympic cycles to figure all that out. Mm. And that was very obvious uh, talking to Mike Harris and uh, Rich Hart and George Carries, the guys who were there. They're going, like, we, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but neither did uh, uh, Curling Canada because it was new for them too. So it took a few cycles to get all that together. And sort of who spearheads this? Because there's a lot of discussion now about the players have their opinion and they seem to have a lot of say with Curling Canada and how these decisions are made and and I think some of that has to do with the finances of it all that the players uh, are in better position financially than they ever have been but back in the 90s everyone sort of flying by the seat of their pants sort of sort of what was it was there a lot of collaboration at that point no uh, I think it was a free-for-all I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think really anybody knew really what they were getting into and what it was going to take um at the time, it was just, you know, we were going to send some good curlers and go to try to win a tournament. And I think until they got there, they didn't really wrap their head around the fact that this no, this is the Olympics. This is a, a different animal, a bigger a bigger uh, deal than we were kind of kind of wrapping our heads around. So, um, yeah, now there's, uh, there's way more planning. There's way more resources. There's uh, the... Curling Canada does it better, and the players are more prepared. Right. And that's just a matter of, like, again, having been through it a bunch of times, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, what 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 do you need uh, along the way. And uh, it certainly wasn't like that the first right. couple yeah. of cycles. <laughs> yeah, but that first one in '98, I think it's really interesting too because Mike Harris and Joan McCusker, basic. I mean, not to sort of dismiss their careers, but they basically have dined out on that. For, for 20 years, you know, they're good at what they do over on CBC, but they were basically selected because they were those, they were in the Olympics in 1998. Like, and so that first one really has, I think, stood the test of time in our memory, certainly more than I think O2 did. Oh, well, Mike was, was, uh, he lost something like three out of four provincial finals right around that time. So, you know, a couple shots go the different way. He's at the Briar every year. Right. Um, 
and he every, everybody on tour knew who he was but no casual Canadian <laughs> fan knew who he was now Joan McCuster and, and the Schmirler team they were three time world champions at mm-hmm. that point so it's not exactly like she was coming out of nowhere um, but yeah once you once you punch your Olympic ticket you can you can ride that for a while especially if you get a medal um, but yeah Mike like I said was 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 not certainly not a nobody but uh, no casual curling fan had heard of him at the time no and good on them too for going out and like yeah. I said they won a medal and, and certainly Sandra Smurler and and her story which I think even non curling people would be would be familiar with the name because mm-hmm. it's a distinctive name uh, and sort of her story was so powerful yeah I mean that the the whole thing she was the the biggest name in in, in women's curling for the entire decade and to yeah, like I said, three Scotties and World Championships, an Olympic gold medal, and then to you know get sick and, and die within a few years of after that, at the age I think she was 37, uh, and just to to put that whole story together was uh, was really just incredible at the time and then to have it end the way it did was was tragic and the thing that blows my mind is like i'm 37 now i remember right. thinking at the time mm-hmm. oh my god like she's so you know she's not that old right and i'm thinking what like this this is all the time i get it, it's really <laughs> it puts things in perspective yeah and and it's been so long now too that her daughter is representing saskatchewan yeah. this week yeah. at the uh, junior championship junior championships so you know we have another generation of schmirler uh, folks ready to take the world by storm perhaps yeah and that that's that's a great story and i'm glad that uh you know she's keeping that that legacy going but uh like i said like like i said it's hard to believe how long ago it was because i, I was in university when she died and just remember exactly kind of where i was right. when when i found out and uh it's uh, just amazing <laughs> amazing how time flies i guess but uh, it was uh yeah she was an incredible talent and it's it's really always going to be one of those mysteries how much more she would have won if she got to stay healthy for a few more years yeah so actually last year on the game of stones we did our all-time fantasy scotty's field and we were trying to figure (laughs) out who should be team canada and i picked jennifer jones she won she's won the most but there was some pushback of people saying it should be sandra schmirler because she won that first olympics and we don't know there's the unknown of how much she would have won because it'd be you'd be hard-pressed to say that she wouldn't have won at least one more yeah, that's that's a. Uh, it was. I mean, they were certainly good enough. Yes. Um, and when talking to Joe McCustiger, uh, they won the '97 Scotties without even really trying. <laughs> they they wanted it to be a tune-up for the trials, or like they 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 were all kind of getting off, uh, having babies and and working on their family, and they just entered the playdowns as, okay, well we should try to make sure we're on point or ready to play for the. Uh, for the Olympic trials, and no, they went out and kind of accidentally won the Scotties <laughs> because they're that good. Right. Um, and uh, that 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 just tells you right there what how how good they were. So if they you know give it a few more years and they're still fairly in their prime uh, as as curlers, yeah, they could have won a, a bunch more. As far as who Team Canada is, I probably give it to Jennifer Jones just because I would want to see another team out of Manitoba. Right. I'd give Schmirler Saskatchewan all day and Colleen right. Jones gets Nova Scotia. Right. And you could probably have Connie Laliberti or someone in there right. else yeah. out of Manitoba. Yeah, I think we had Connie Laliberti. And I actually didn't give Sandra Schmirler Saskatchewan. I uh, I had her be the wild card because I thought, I think she's more of a national team. 
and well, if you talk about so Scotty's Scotty's Field, I don't know if uh, you definitely want them all there. And, right, and I give it to Vera Peters for Saskatchewan, <laughs> two-time champion. You know, all-time uh, field. You know, there's yeah. not that many multiple-time champions. Yeah, well, so um, yeah, that's that's a fun question, but uh, I would I would give her Saskatchewan and Jennifer just because she's won that much more, or and yeah. obviously, yeah. Uh, had a, had a little bit more opportunity, but uh, yeah. either way, both both fantastic teams. Yeah, I feel as though we kind of, you know, it, obviously tragedy that Sandra Schmerler couldn't play longer, but we it also sort of cheated us from seeing her and Jennifer Jones play a whole bunch potentially yeah. in the early 2000s. Yeah, and then mix, throw Colleen Jones into the mix, who was yeah. winning everything during that time. Yeah. Uh, that would have been a real murderer's row. Yeah, for sure. Year, that's right? that's like, the yeah. Mount Rushmore of women's curling right yeah. there during that time. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get into the early 2000s, and this is something that I think a lot of casual fans either don't really talk about or don't remember, was the financial considerations that were going on. Kevin Martin sort of leading the charge to get teams to be able to have their sponsors represented at the Briar, and he just didn't play. And Randy Furby goes on that incredible run, in part aided by... Kevin Martin choosing not to play. So, so when you were talking to folks about this era, are there still some hard feelings? Were people reluctant to talk about it? No, not really. Everybody was fairly, fairly open uh, to tell the stories. I think uh, maybe in a couple cases they didn't want to say too much in fear of throwing somebody under a bus or uh, kind of reopening old wounds. Uh, the I talked to Randy Furby and Kevin Martin. They were both happy to chat about it, and they those are the two individuals i would say who are still harboring the most uh <laughs> the most resentment towards each other because everybody else i think got over it and they realized that the uh, the sport is better for it and everybody moved on and now we have events like the canada cup and the continental cup and you can wear your sponsors and you can uh you know get paid a little bit um but it's it's really furby and martin who are still kind of jawing at each other because they're they're they were the rivals probably the two best teams at the time and yeah because martin didn't want to play in those briars furby had certainly an easier ride than he would have but not to say that kevin martin would have won them either so uh what what people kind of tend to forget is that once all the boycott era teams came back into the fold None of most of the good ones didn't make it to the Briar that year. Right. So after everything was settled and they all entered the playdowns, there was no Glenn Howard, there was no Kevin Martin, there was no Jeff Stoughton at that next Briar. Maybe, maybe Stoughton might have been there, but most of the big names didn't even qualify for the Briar. So Furby had one more run where it was still, it was technically a full strength field, but none of the big names were there. Right. Does he sort of hold any resentment from people saying that? he was aided by the boycott yeah definitely <laughs> yeah he feels as though he's been cheated by that yeah. narrative like yeah that so they don't get due kevin kevin martin will swear up and down there should be an asterisk or something <laughs> next to two of furby's briars and furby will swear up and down that kevin martin's an idiot for saying such a thing <laughs> and uh it's uh i don't think it's there there are i guess two sides to every coin and they, you can you could make either argument but there's no doubt that furby won they were one of the best teams in the world at the time. They won four Briars and almost five. And only two of those were in an era where uh, where the, the Grand Slam teams weren't in it. So it's 
I think that my favorite part of that was when Furby asked me, well, how many Grand Slams does Kevin Martin win if we're in them? Yeah. Because Kevin yeah, Martin, Kevin Martin question. really loves to loves to uh, brag about, you know, I've got 18 Grand Slams. Those are the, the biggest wins of my life and so on. It's like, well, if you put Randy Furby and that team in the first 10 Grand Slams, Kevin maybe doesn't win two of them. You know, right. like, so... Uh, Furby turns that around on him, and I think I think that's a fair fair assessment too. But there's no doubt that those are both, you know, the probably top two teams of that era. Mm. And then how do we situate the women's game within that? Because we you know we've seen since Sportsnet bought the Grand Slams a few years ago, they've added women's events at everyone now. And so where do the women fit into this story? Because when the men were boycotting like that, you didn't really hear a lot about the the women's teams. Yeah, the interesting part there is they they. I talked to Colleen Jones and Joe McCusker, all these people who were playing around the time, and said, we, we weren't organized. We didn't have the product. We didn't have the star power. And if if we were a little bit better organized, we would have been on board. But we weren't, so we weren't. <laughs> and uh, and then as a result, they ended up getting the the benefit of all the stuff that came out of that confrontation. They got the benefit as well without having to you know, make the sacrifice. And so they're, they're grateful. And, uh, uh, curling is one of those sports where the, the gender equality is, is pretty, pretty fair, fairly matched. Uh, I'm not going to say it's totally equal, but it's pretty close. And the, the women got the benefit of that because of the, all those teams that made the boycott and put up the, and caused the, uh, the conversation to happen. Mm-hmm. And then, so how do we put it into context? I remember, too, when they split the men's and the women's world championships, right? They used to be played at the same place at the mm-hmm. same time. And I remember when they split them, Colleen Jones, I, I believe it was Colleen Jones, said that this is bad for the women's world championship, that they should be played together, that the crowds will only go to one. And, and her feeling at the time was that it's more likely that the men will get more attention now from the media and, and from fans and all that. And it, it seemed like with the the push towards gender equality that was maybe a step in the wrong direction did that come up at all in those conversations of, of the two the divide between the two not really and it, it's it's barzara because i almost forgot all about that but the i remember when those worlds were together it seemed like much more of a more of a party it was more of a social thing because you had more teams you had it was a men's and women's event and this you had all the fans so um it felt more lively um and i think once they split them up it became more about the curling again and uh yeah maybe it did struggle for for a little bit but right now if you mean you look at the the women's worlds over the last few years they've been well attended and they have been super competitive and there's no doubt that it's a standalone event they don't need to rely on any of the guys there i did feel bad though i think it was a couple years ago that the scotties was in moose jaw and then the worlds was in lethbridge or something and the men's and the briar was like like in in edmonton or calgary <laughs> and then the worlds was in like like a cool european city i like i felt kind of bad like they, they seem to go they, they seem to have to go to smaller places it, than the men. It, it does happen that way but i mean they they can also do it in in the smaller arenas and bigger cities you know like right but it, that's just true with every event you can't keep going back to the well to the the same cities and expect to fill the arena every time. Right, and, and we're sort of seeing that a little bit, I think, this week uh, here in Vegas, where the crowds have been lower than certainly the last time I was here. Yeah, and I think that's just uh, considering the worlds were here nine months ago, and yeah. 
Uh, a lot of people made the trip for that, and that was a nine-day event. Yeah. So, yeah, you might have uh, gone to that well maybe a little bit too soon. But I, I would, I mean, I love coming, I love this event because people travel for it and people really love coming to Vegas. Um, it's just a matter of whether you do it every year or every other year and, yeah. you know, something like that. But, uh, it, yeah, you are seeing it a little bit this week because I remember I've been to everyone that's been in this building and the uh, the crowds aren't quite where they where they were in, in past years. Yeah, so uh, I want to get back to the mid-aughts a little bit yep. uh, and, and talk to about... TV, right? So curling is a TV sport. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that. I think curling in person, it's fun to come. I think it's sneaky, not as good as on TV <laughs> um, because, you know, you have access to the players through the microphones and all that. But there was that controversy when CBC took the <laughs> Briar and the Scotties from TSN. There was a whole website about save our TSN coverage. Vic Router became the most lionized person in the history of Canada for about six months there. Um, is this something that when you talk to the players they were conscious of? And does this come up in the book? Um, I think it's mentioned briefly in the book. I'm laughing because I was working for CBC at the time. And I had nothing to do with the sports side of things. I was working for CBC News. And any time I mentioned to a curling fan that I worked for CBC, I I would get the full wrath of <laughs> all of their just disgust about how could you put it on yeah. Country Canada, this digital network yeah. that nobody has. And it was, it was just a... It was kind of a funny time, and I think it was probably just just a little bit ahead of its time. I don't think people really had uh, caught on to digital cable yet or how to subscribe to new channels no, or anything like yeah. that. And yeah. Yeah, you know, two years too early. Exactly. You know, yeah. And it'd be like, well, right now, if you say it's not going to be on TSN anymore, we're going to stream it. Some people wouldn't mind, but a lot of the uh, the older generation might give you <laughs> write some angry yeah, letters. The demographics <laughs> of this sport do skew a yeah. little older in terms of the fan base. Yeah. So that one was funny. And I, th- I think it came up just in some of the... Uh, talking about some of the politics of, of what it was like in the era but it was really more of a mentioning and because it that got resolved before the week was out i think i think they yeah. they ended up putting it back on the main network before the the tournament was over um because it was such a fiasco but um yeah i i think at that point it was a mistake that was quickly ratified so it doesn't really have a whole lot of uh lingering effects right, but it was because it's so weird that you know you go the, the teams go through this thing to get their branding to get their sponsors and then cbc comes along and says we'll put this on this channel that nobody has yeah. and, and so you're sitting around like what and, and it was very strange at the time and i remember uh, sort of being annoyed by it yeah uh, and it was it was totally inconvenient because obviously everybody loves watching their briar and their scotties and when you say oh so you you don't get to watch it this year because it's on, you don't get that channel well it was like TSN for a while when nobody, a lot of people didn't have TSN two. Right. Oh, tonight's Briar coverage is on TSN two, and then again they were getting the yep. brunt of it again. Yeah. But now everybody's got what five TSN channels yeah. and six sports nets, so <laughs> yeah. I think I think we're covered now. Yeah, and that speaks to the expanding coverage too. You know, there's now what seven Grand Slams. The season of champions has expanded out. You mentioned the Canada Cup. There's this here at the Continental Cup. Uh, the juniors still get pretty much the same coverage yep. as they've always gotten and the the world championships seems to be the same as well but you know the season now goes from with the world cups you had those in goes from late august early september all the way into the end of april early may it's just this long slog yeah for the players and and you talked about the change in terms of 
you know, these guys now hit the gym. You know, with all due respect to Randy Furby, <laughs> he's not the fittest guy in the world. And now all these guys have to be, in part because that season is so long. And did they talk about, did, did guys talk about that? Like sort of those old hats, like the Glenn Howards who used to play like a five-month season. And yeah. now he's out there basically I, eight months. I asked the same question to a lot of these, the, both the current players and the former ones. And a lot of the former guys said, if, if this was the tour that, if this is what I signed up for, I wouldn't have done it. Right. Because, you know, people like Al Hackner and, and that era, he said, oh, we'd play like three or four spiels before Christmas. Then we get into the playdowns. If you don't win your playdowns, you don't go to the Briar and your season's over. Right. That was it. They'd play maybe six events all year. Hmm. And then now these guys are playing 11, 12 weeks before Christmas, and then the competitive <laughs> season starts. It's ridiculous. So uh, a lot of the the old school curlers said I, I could never do it because like we all had jobs to get back to on Monday morning. <laughs> right. And so between the time off and just the the travel and and the like the amount of commitment involved, a lot of those those old school curlers said that it's it's too much now. Not that they don't enjoy the product, but that they wouldn't. Have they don't feel that at that time they could have put in the same amount of effort. Right, so that sort of leads to where is this all going in Canada? A lot of these people still claim to have full-time jobs, although they're out not at those jobs. I know they would, would work full-time in the summer and, and all these things. And, and But where's the end game? Because, you know, at an event like this, you have these European teams who are full-time curlers. And in Canada, the, the depth is so, so rich. And we're trying to figure out how to manage the funding situation do you put it all on two or three teams and let everybody else sort of fight it out and sort of where do you land on this having talked to the players in terms of what the best approach should be for this country to continue to be the best curling country in the world at world championships olympics all those sorts of things well that's a million dollar question and i don't claim to have any of any (laughs) of the answers um it it is we it's a it's a what's the thing i'm looking for it's a it's a blessing and a curse all at once to have so many good teams that all of those teams are what makes those other teams better. If if we only had one good team, we could throw all the funding at them and they could, you know, be be fully funded and travel the world and have access to the best everything. But un- unfortunately, we have, you know, 20 or more teams who can compete at that level. So how do you how do you make it fair? You you have to be uh, you treat everybody relatively equally. Um, yeah, if you're at the top, 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 then you get a little bit more funding. You get a little bit more opportunity and some, some, a little more attention. But that's not to say that those those other teams can't break through. Right. And I look at you know Gushu back in in the uh, mid 2000s before he went to the Olympics. He's flying out of Newfoundland on his own money, playing every weekend. If if they didn't win, they're going home broke, and that was just a really expensive box field. <laughs> and same with Brad Jacobs coming out of Sault Ste. Marie. They would drive across Ontario for 10, 12 hours at a time to play a Bonspiel in Toronto or in Cornwall or something. And uh, then, you know, if you don't win, you go home angry and you've got a 12-hour drive ahead of you. <laughs> so it, it can be done, it, but it, re- it requires a certain amount and a very distinct level of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think anybody who whines about not being funded should just look at those guys and say look it's not it's not a handout you have to really earn it and you have to pay your dues and put in your time and slog it out 
and yeah, eventually, if you're if you really want it and you're good enough, you're going to get your funding when it's when the time comes. Yeah, is there a greater concentration though at the top now than there used to be? I mean, you get to a national championship, and it feels like there's five teams that five or six teams that can make the playoffs, two teams maybe three that can win. Whereas, you know, granted, I was a kid watching in like the early '90s and didn't really know who everybody was, but I, I never got the sense that it was like, like it's sort of almost predetermined in, in a way that it feels now sometimes. Uh, yes and no. I think that there was always, uh, you know, they always call them the have and the have-not provinces, and every now and then one other one surprises, but you, you always get a good team out of Al- Alberta, Manitoba, and Ontario, mm-hmm. and Saskatchewan's usually pretty good, and then everybody else... You know, so like during the 2000s, you had really good teams coming out of Nova Scotia at the Briar. Right. We, we haven't really seen a good Nova Scotia team out of the Briar for the last handful of years. And for a while, Newfoundland was a free space on the bingo card. And then yeah. all of a sudden, Gushu comes to 13, 14, 15 straight Briars. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was ever easy or predetermined. But uh, there are. I think the 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 other question is how many good teams don't go to the Briar every year right. out of Alberta or Manitoba. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember I played at uh, a provincial in in Ontario where Glenn Howard won it, but Wayne Mada was also there. John Epping was also there, uh, and uh, a couple other names you would recognize: Peter Corner, like yeah. pe- people who were good really players. really good teams yeah. that weren't going to the Briar that year. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, and I know Alberta and like a lot of provinces are the same, but only that's kind of the the fun part about the Briar is that somebody had to win that event to go to the next level, and you're only getting one from that province. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's the best way to determine your national champion. If like I I love the Olympic trials and the Canada Cup for that reason because mm-hmm. in theory you have the best eight or ten teams there. But if you're not going to do it that way, I love the the representation that comes with the Briar. Yeah, and you get you know the people in the the hats from Nova Scotia and all that all that stuff. And and two, you get what I want, and it doesn't have to be every year, obviously, because it's not sustainable. But I like the if you remember 2010, the, the Kathy O'Rourke team that makes it to the final, the Scotties, <laughs> like that, like those teams that those are the, that's when it gets really fun, where it's people you've don't expect yeah. to make it through. And that I, that still, to me, is the most fun week of a Scotties that I've ever had as a viewer because of <laughs> because of that team. Yeah, and, and I think you see it a little bit more on the women's side is that, you know, one team gets hot. Um, like, even at 05, nobody expected Jan Hanna to be in the final. Right. But all of a sudden, she goes through a tiebreaker, semis, finals, yeah. and almost wins the thing. Yeah, and if not a miracle no, shot. Yeah, nobody saw that one coming. Yeah. And, um, I don't think you get that so often in, at the Briar, but uh, yeah, every now and then you get some dark horse at the Scotties <laughs> <laughs> trucking through and end up uh, really kind of disrupting that narrative because you you expect it to be Homan and Jones in the final every year. And yeah. Of course, it's not not always going to be that. No, we had a past couple well, it was years. Well, the other yeah, year, yeah. Michelle Engelot. You could say Marianne Arsenault yeah. last year a little bit uh, as well. So, you know, in, in your travels and talking to all these folks, I, I, one of the things that is sort of universally assumed about curlers, and it, in my experience, has been true that they're all accommodating and, and pretty good people, with some minor exceptions <laughs> who we don't have to get into. But uh, you know, is is that? A truism, or is that actually real? That this sport attracts good people. Um, it's certainly true. I I can't even 
imagine any other sport being so uh, accommodating to fans, to media, to uh, like just people in general. You can go up and talk to any of these people, and there's rarely a hint of ego or um, any any sense that you're disturbing them. Like they're 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 genuinely nice people. I don't know if that's if the sport attracts that or maybe makes them into that mm-hmm. because if you hang out with enough of these people and you kind of see how everybody else is doing it, you don't want to be the one who stands out <laughs> as, Oh, you're the, you're the jerk. <laughs> right. Um, but it, it is, it is certainly true that when I was doing like, I, I interviewed 48 people for this book and most of them, I took more than an hour to talk to. And most of them were totally willing to talk for another hour. Mm. And, uh, like Wayne Madal would have talked to me for four hours. I, swear, I think I think I got a, probably an hour and a half into it, and I was like, Wayne, I, I feel bad. I'm taking up all your time here. And he's like, oh, whatever. Like, like I, he loved talking about it. He would have. He would have. There's a book in itself, just Wayne Madal stories. But uh, uh, almost everybody was super, uh, really pleasant to chat and uh, really excited to share some stories. And yeah, for the most part, there wasn't anybody who. I felt like I was really intruding on. Hmm. Um, and I think people like telling their own story or, or sharing their own opinions too. So this is, I, uh, once, once you get people talking about it, they're like, okay, yeah, I remember that. And I, here's what I was feeling at the time. And that, uh, makes for, makes for good stories and, uh, was part of the reason that the book kind of came together as well as it did. Now, but one of the things that TSN does at the end of pretty much every event is they'll do that video essay where mm-hmm. Vic voices over and it always alludes to at some point that curling is sort of the best part of Canada and it represents what Canada is and sort of the niceness, the congeniality, you know, competitive, but, you know, not in a mean way and and all that. And one of the things I've, I've talked to players about before and we've talked about on this podcast before is if Canada represents what the country, or excuse me, if curling is supposed to represent what Canada is in some small way, the thing that I can't help but notice is that when I watch on TV or when I look out here, on the sheets, it, it doesn't look like the country that I walk around in every day. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, just, you know, the, the, that makeup of it. Is that something that players are conscious of? Does it come up at all for you? Um, it, it comes up for me. I live in downtown Toronto, so there's tons of, I mean, curling is very, very white. Let's call it a call spade sure, shovel, right? Course, it's, yeah. It is a very white bread, middle class sport. Yeah. You're, you're not getting a lot of uh, immigrants or uh, in, you know, uh, new Canadians as they call them. Like, um, there's, but as you say, that that's that's what the country looks like, especially where I live. Um, and we we start to see more of it. There's are people of of different ethnic uh, backgrounds who are, are who are starting to take it up. And um, I'm, it's it's a s- slow process, but I think it's it's starting to happen. Just based again on on sheer demographics is if you have that many people in in a in a town eventually (laughs) some some non-white person is going to show up at your curling club and want to play so um, and everyone needs something to do in the winter yeah i mean if you're gonna stick out canadian winters you need to take up some sort of hobby you're gonna go gonna go crazy uh but as far as do people notice that on tour i i don't think it's in the front of their mind anyway right but it would be it would be interesting if, um, you know, if if somebody of a different ethnicity started showing. Well, you start seeing with the, with a lot of the Asian teams. Yeah. You know, like China, Japan, and uh, Korea have 
put together some really good curling teams over the last few years, and it's it is certainly changing the look of the sport, and especially with all of the money and effort that China's putting in these days too. You're, I think you're going to see more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just curious to see at what point, because I think it'll be, it's inevitable where we'll have uh, a non-white team represent Canada at yeah. a world championship. I, I think it, it's bound to happen at some point. Maybe not in the next few years because there's no one currently at that level, but uh, certainly it, it's expected. So uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. Oh, no, so, I, I, um, I, I want to ask you one more. Sure. Uh, well, it's one that's sort of two questions. Uh, best women's team of all time and the best men's team of all time. Oh, that's not fair. Um <laughs> But that's what makes it fun. Yeah, it's I not mean, fair. in the in the book, I kind of walk through. There was the in the last twenty years or thirty years, you go from Schmerler to Colleen Jones to Jennifer Jones to Homan. Yeah. And I think you could put any one of those near the top of the list or at the top of the list. And that's not to take away anything from the eras before that, but I think the curling has gotten that much better that. Um, it's it's really hard to put your finger on it, but uh, the fact that I'm I'm gonna go with Jennifer Jones just because uh, not only has she you know won the I think she's tied for the most Scotties now or won the most either way she's still going yes. and there's there's still a lot more things for her to win yeah. and and the Olympic gold on top of that so uh, yeah perhaps if Schmerler had a, a longer career then we would you know yeah. it might be her without a doubt but for now I'll just go with uh, Jennifer Jones yeah she's won all the things there's nothing yeah. left for her to yeah. win and, and that includes events that Sandra Schmerler could not have played in because yep. they didn't exist yeah um, and then with the men's again you could there's the list is long but yes. it, uh, if you're looking for a guy who's won all the things, you got to put Kevin Martin up there. You got to put Gushu up there. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I think and, people forget that Gushu won a gold medal sometimes. Yeah. Well, because it, it happened 13 years ago. And, and what, uh, what what the joke is like, he he won the gold medal, and it took him 13 years after that to become the best team in the world. Right. Yeah. He he because he was yeah. not the best team in the no. world when he won the gold, but uh, you know he got he got good at the right times. Um, but. I'm a, I, I say it over and over in the book. I'm a huge Wayne Madaw fan. And if you look at that, that early early team of Madaw, Corner, mm. and Glenn and Russ Howard, like that, that team was that's, a powerhouse. Yeah, it's pretty unstoppable. Um, Those are four guys who skipped their own teams in Briars. Yeah, three of them won the Briar yeah. <laughs> as a skip. Yeah. And, and Corner had a pretty good run himself. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that was probably one of the best teams ever. And... Uh, then you know again like he's i think martin martin overall again has won all the things and i think gushu by the end of it will probably be at the top of that list yeah and i think this gushu team right now i mean i think it's pretty undeniable this is the best team he's ever had the four of them together and but that kevin martin team when it was him john morris yeah mark and benny yeah they, they were pretty much unbeatable yeah um you know and and like they're going up against that glenn howard team that was amazing and, and they got the better of them more often than not and you know I, I suggested that perhaps we could have like a, a botcher Dunstone and 10 years from now we'd be talking about the two of them going at each other in the same way but that those two teams going back and forth was so much fun for four years yeah and I, I, I had that thought about a week ago that botcher playing the way he is now I feel like will be 
be at the top for the next couple of cycles. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, looking internationally, Bruce Moat's team playing the way they are, yeah. are going to be a force for the next little while too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we're in for an exciting decade of curling coming yeah. up because there's a lot of really good young teams. Yeah. And the Swedish team that feels like they've been around forever, but they're not that old either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Nicodine team and yeah. Peter Crew, same thing. They've been around forever, but they're not that old. So. Yeah. Well, Nicholas, I don't know. Was he? He's, I think in, he's his in his early early thirties. And yeah. yeah, he's been to what, three Olympics yeah. already, and yeah. we'll probably go to three more before he's done. Yeah, uh, it's just I think with him it'll be a matter of uh, how much effort he's willing to put in over the next little while, or whether because right. the just the travel alone, putting the putting the miles on, is exhausting, and you got to wonder at some point is it is it still worth it, or is it time to get on and. Uh, you know, live the rest of your life, but right. he seems to like it, and they're obviously really good at it. So obviously, <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't take that away. Yeah, no, uh, certainly, and and I, th- I would say Sweden has to be the number two country right now, after Canada. It, I, I don't care about like rankings and stuff, yeah. but just in sort of looking at it on the competitive level, uh, you know, the, you arguably have the best team in the world in the men and the women. Yeah, coming out of Sweden. Um, no argument there. The, the question is just the depth, right? So yeah. if if uh, Nicholas Eden breaks his leg right you know then what happens right yeah, um yeah. there are other teams but they're not going to be they're not going to perform that level where like i said we're spoiled in canada where that you know if gushu goes down we still got Kui and jacobs yeah. and everybody else um so it'll uh it, certainly like hasselborg the way they've come on lately is uh again it's a it's a nice sign that young teams who put in the effort can get rewarded but you you have to Take yourself seriously and not expect anything to be given to you. And For sure. You have to put the, put the work in. Yeah, awesome. So again, the book written in stone, a modern history of curling. You can see how we got to this point with all these teams. So Brian, you self-publish this. So where can people go to find it? What, what's the best way for them to the get e- access? The easiest way is on Amazon. Okay. Um, you can go to Amazon.com.ca or whatever and just look for Written in Stone. It'll show up. Um, and then otherwise, uh, Goldline and Dynasty uh, have are are carrying it. So it's either in their catalog or if you happen to be at an event where they have a pop-up shop, you might be able to find it there too. Uh, but yeah, easiest way is Amazon because everybody has access to that. Yeah, awesome. And uh, leftbutton.com and your Twitter handle at leftbutton. Yeah. Follow so all the fun and frivolity there. I uh, I'm a very active tweeter and I follow the twitters. So <laughs> if you want to uh, give me a chat, fire away at leftbutton. There you have it. My discussion with Brian Chick, and as always, I thank him for taking the time a couple years ago to speak with me. And everybody, if you like curling. Enjoy the games this week. It's kicking off Friday night out in Calgary. And if you want more curling content, head on over to GameOfStonesPod.com. This is a curling podcast that I do with my brother, Scott. We break down all the major events over the course of the pandemic. Had uh, some really fun episodes, some sort of nonsensical things, uh, but all related to curling. And when I say nonsensical, for instance, we reviewed the episode of The Simpsons where Homer and Marge win Olympic gold in curling. So we've ventured into that direction during the pandemic, but now there are games to talk about. We're going to talk about them over on the podcast. We actually did an hour and 45-minute preview of the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. So we're all very excited to have it back. So head on over there if you want more curling content or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you head over to GammaStonesPod.com, we do have some merch over there. There's some T-shirts, and all the proceeds from the T-shirts are going to Food Banks Canada, and we're matching them. So if you buy a shirt, we're going to match that, send it off to Food Banks Canada, something that we started doing 
uh, during the pandemic, uh, well, selling the shirts. Uh, we started doing that during the pandemic as a, a way to, in our own little way, support uh, Food Banks Canada at a very difficult time for a lot of folks out there. So head on over if you want some more curling content. And uh, that'll do it for this week. We'll be back with you next week with an all-new episode. So please do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch that. Wherever it is you get your podcast, likes, ratings, all that good stuff helps us grow the show. And you can reach out. Let me know what you want to hear. HistorySlam at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And all, as always, head on over to ActiveHistory.ca. A lot of great content over there. Jeremy Malloy with a very powerful piece about tenuous employment in this day and age, which certainly I am very familiar with uh, tenuous employment, as are a lot of folks uh, in, in my age bracket in the career paths that we are pursuing. So a uh, really powerful piece by Jeremy, and I would highly recommend that. And of course, head on over to howwehelped.wordpress.com for the five-part audio documentary about Eastern Ontario social workers. And again, as I said last week, it is focused on Eastern Ontario, but I really think it applies to social work and some of the social issues that exist across the country. So very accessible piece over there and relevant to communities all over the country. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope everyone is doing well out there and staying safe. As I said, we'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.